here to the first slide. There, we've got it up there. My uh, slides here are not updating, so uh, they're going to do it from there. I'm just going to try to follow what I have here. But we're looking at the life of Abraham, and it's really a life of faith is really the, the series. Abraham is one of the characters who is the life of faith. And, of course, we really, in the last few weeks, we've been talking about his son Isaac. And we've been talking about a bride for Isaac. And we've been looking at that. And uh, we're in part three of that in Genesis chapter 24. And I want to read from Genesis 24, verse 50 to verse 60, right to the end of the chapter there. It says, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass, when Abraham's servant heard their words, that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And my slides decided to crash in the middle of that. And we were on, what verse was that? 54, 55. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days. And it says, At least ten. After that, she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, so that I may go to my master. And so they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. And then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And so they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may, our sister, may you become the mother of thousands and tens of thousands. And, that, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. And let's, let's pray. Lord, again, we come before you. I thank you for the opportunity to open up your word this morning. And Lord, I thank you that you are a good and gracious God. And Lord, as we dig into the text this morning. I do pray, O Lord, that you would teach us. We know that the message we have this morning, certainly the enemy does not want out there. And Lord, I I sense that even now, that it has been an attack from the very beginning this morning. And yet, Lord, your word is open before us once again. We are so thankful for that. And Lord, I just pray now that, uh, God, that uh, Christ may be lifted up out of this book, out of these pages, and he may do his work among us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we're looking at this, and I'm probably going to grab my microphone temporarily. <clears throat> I'm going to grab the red one. There we go. I, this is the danger of using things in the cloud, as they say, right? Sometimes they don't synchronize and they don't work. But we're looking at this bride for Isaac, and we've been looking, this is part three, as we looked at last week, we, or the last two times, the will of the Father, and we saw that as Abraham, right? And how Abraham desired that his son would find a wife. And Abraham pictures for us uh, a type, and we looked at that earlier, a type, really, of our Heavenly Father, who is 
about our business and he is ordaining our steps and he's doing things for us and he's being so gracious to us and all that and he has the wealth and the um, the honor and all the things that are due a father right and so he sends out his servant and that's what we looked at last week the witness of the servant and we had the servant going out. He's nameless. We, I think that's intentional. The Holy Spirit, when he breathed out the words uh, to Moses, uh, in, and Moses penned those words uh, in the book of Genesis, he did not include the servant's name. And I think that's intentional because uh, it was not about the servant, was it? It was about what the servant was witnessing to. And that's exactly what we are really also, as we are God's witness. And also, we find that he, the servant, was a representative or a shadow of a greater, and that was God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit's primary ministry to the world is one of a witness. And he reproves of sin, and he holds back evil, and he does other things like that, but he is witnessing about the Son. And that's exactly what goes on when the servant comes, and he... Uh, we know how that worked, right? He has this, well, he, he goes to a well and a woman comes out and he had made this kind of uh, prayer to God and he said, if this woman offers me a drink, but not only me, but my camels also. And remember, he had a bunch of camels, didn't he? And each one of those could drink a lot of water. And that woman, Rebecca, comes out and she offers not only the servant drink, but also the camels. And that was a sign that God was favoring her and she was the one for Isaac. And all this time we see how the sovereign God is at work and he's moving and he had all those details planned and yet we also see where there was people's wills involved. And we looked at the witness of the servant. Well today we're going to look at the willingness of the bride because the the servant goes, and he is invited now into the home of Rebecca, and to Rebecca's family, and he lays out the proposal that Rebecca is uh, to be well. She, if she, he asks her if she's going to be willing to be a bride, the bride to Isaac, and Isaac wasn't there. The servant was representing Isaac, and we see that in Scripture. Uh, exactly how the Lord does the same thing with us, right? And there's, again, these Old Testament pictures, and I think I had a slide up there of the, from last week that shows a cross and a Bible. And the cross and the Bible, and you think about that, when we look at the Old Testament going through that, there is a, a really a shadow of a greater to come. And the Old Testament bears witness of the Savior, of the Messiah. It doesn't tell us specifically who he would be, Although it tells us enough so that there were all kinds of prophecies fulfilled and that people would know who he would be by the prophecies and they would know by the timing and they would know by the declaration of God's word. And the only person that meets that criteria in history is Jesus. And Jesus is indeed Messiah. The Old Testament bore record and witness of a greater to come. Just like that servant came and he offered... uh, he, he offered a witness to his master, Abraham, but also to Isaac. And that was important, and we see that. Well, uh, in, these, in this section of Scripture that we read, it reminds us also, and see if that works on us, and not, it's not going to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, right after the outline. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. Now, I'll stop right there. Peter is writing to first century believers. This is well after the time of Abraham. He's writing to believers. And he's saying this, that you are in this journey for just a little bit, a little while. Some of you say it seems like it's a long while. It's been a long, hard time. And some of you sometimes face those trials. And you know what? All of us face trials, but it's only for a little while. And he says, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And then he says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, why are we on this planet for a little while? Why are we having these various trials and testings through our life? It's because it shows the genuineness of your faith. And we see that in the life of Abraham. We see that later in the life of his son Isaac. And then in Jacob and all through the descendants of that family as well. And for those who by faith have received the God of Abraham. That's those of us that are Christians. You know what? We will face trials. But look what it says here. The next verse. It says, whom having not seen you love. Who's he referring to? He's referring to Jesus. Do you know the Bible talks about a marriage it talks about a marriage to the lord jesus and it's those who are of his church and the church in the old testament is a mystery it was not something that was revealed specifically it's alluded to god has always intended that all the earth might know his hand and that it is powerful and mighty and he always intended that and he even said with in genesis chapter 12 that all the nations of the earth would be blessed from the seed of Abraham. And so we already knew that. But you know, just like Rebecca had not seen Isaac, uh, and I don't know, that's quite a step of faith right there. Think of that. Getting ready to get married, and, and according to our text we read this morning, she was willing, and yet she had not seen him. How many of you would have gotten married to somebody you'd never see? Uh oh. Maybe it would have been better. I don't know. Uh, uh, but isn't it funny? We're, we're so driven in our world by looks, aren't we? And, and looks helps, I, I think, right? It, it really does. And yet, for Rebecca, it was really about what God was planning for her. And she recognized that. And she recognized the wealth that her master's household had. Because remember, the servant came with all these camels, and they weren't empty. They were loaded with all kinds of gifts. And, they, and she was adorned with jewelry and as a gift. And all of that was showing the wealth of this man who could provide for her. And the looks probably would just be secondary. We don't have pictures of what they looked like either. We know that she was a pretty woman. We really don't know what Isaac, uh, as far as his looks or whatever else. But I, and it doesn't matter. Because she looked by faith to a marriage. And it was really a marriage that really was made in heaven. And it was a marriage that yet she was going to be willing to be involved with as well. Well, we see that. And go back to verse 8 there. It says this, that whom having not seen you love. That's referring to Christ. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Do you realize 
we also have never seen the Son. We've not seen Jesus. Now, there are people that claim, oh, I saw Jesus resurrected or whatever, this and that. I mean, I'm saying like modern day, not talking about the apostles, not talking about those. But according to Scripture, Jesus ascended into heaven, right? And he is there seated at the right hand of the Father, a place of rest. And he's awaiting his bride. The Bible does say he's coming back again, and everybody will see him. They will look on him whom they pierced, the Bible says, prophetically, of Messiah when he returns. He's coming again. But Jesus is not present with us right now. The Holy Spirit is, and he is another of the same. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said that another comforter would come when he wasn't there, and that's the Holy Spirit. And we have the Holy Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He bears witness with our heart as we looked at last week. He's the earnest or the down payment of our expectation. By faith we have said, Lord, I believe. And you are engaged to Christ in a marriage. Yet you've never seen him. But you've seen what he's like. And you know about him because his word reveals it to us. It tells us what he's like. And I can just say this, that if you want to find the, the ultimate spouse, all right, you will find it in the person of Jesus Christ. You won't find it in any other spouse, by the way, because we all fail somewhere, some way or shape. There's, obviously, that isn't our, what we're trying to do, right, as, as people, but we're sinners, and sinners will let you down. Jesus will never let you down. And because of that, as it says there, it says, Though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. And you love him, yet you haven't seen him. Isn't that a great thing? And you know what? Isaac had not been seen yet by Rebekah. And yet, there's that spark. It doesn't say in the the text yet that she's going to love him. That would come later as far as revealed. But she was willing to give her hand in marriage and join with this man that she had never seen. Very important thing, isn't it? Verse 9 says, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what we receive. And we yet, you don't see that now. That's future. Although, you can, if you're a believer in Christ, you're saved now, and that's a present tense, and saved from sin. That's from your past sin, your present sin, your future sin. We're saved to the uttermost. The fullness of our salvation will not be revealed until we're in that eternal state. Al mentioned that today. In the presence of God. Oh, what a day that'll be. And the Bible talks about that. The Bible talks about it's a place where there is no more darkness. I'm glad for that. We live in a world that is both spiritually and physically dark at times, isn't it? It's dark. All kinds of evil going on in our world. And if you turn on the news, it doesn't matter what time of day you turn the news on, there'll be some report of some evil act that has gone on, some greater than others. But it's a world filled with evil. In heaven, there's no evil. There's no sin. There's no thief to come and steal something. There's nobody to murder you. And there's no tears even. The things that today weigh heavy on us will not be like that in the eternal state in heaven. That's a wonderful truth. Someday, it will be the salvation of our souls. Fully realizing that God 
is the one who's redeemed us. And that's yet future. The Bible in the book of Revelation talks a great, about a great marriage and a marriage supper. And those that are invited to it. And he invites us even today for that. Well, we see in Genesis 24, verse 33, and it says this, um, Food was set before him to eat, but he said, this is the reference to the servant, I will not eat, right? Why? Because he was on mission. He was on a mission. Look what he says. I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, speak on. And this servant came. He, he was more concerned about the mission that he was on. And he would only eat after he had told them exactly what was taking place. And that's exactly, by the way, what God is all about. You realize that Jesus was on mission. The Holy Spirit today is on mission in that he is even now sending forth as we send forth the God's word and we speak it forth. He illuminates your heart and mind to receive those things. He convicts of sin. It didn't take much in my life to realize I was a sinner when I came to, to faith in Christ just before that. I, I began reading the Bible and I already knew growing up somewhat religious that always talked about my sin. I knew that I was a sinner. That was one thing I can say was good. <laughs> that I, not that I was a sinner, but that I knew that I was a sinner. Because you see, if you don't know you're a sinner, then you're uh, really, you don't need a Savior, do you? Well, you don't think you do. You do, but you don't think you do. It's interesting, for 10 days they were to wait there. Um, That's what they said. Remember, the servant was willing to take Rebecca right back. But then they said, wait, we're going to have a little time, call the family, get everybody together. And they waited 10 days for those things. And I often think about that because sometimes, uh, and and I could go on, the number 10 is significant in the Bible. Um, 10 is one of those numbers like 3 and 7. It's a number of completion. And in many cases, it shows a number of completion in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, God says something 10 times. God said, God said, God said, mark it in Genesis chapter 1. You'll read that. Uh, He gave 10 commandments, which really are hinged the the fullness of the law. 10 commandments. In 10 days, they had to wait and then asked Rebecca, are you willing? And she says, I'm willing. She even had time to think about it. Now, I would say this, that don't always wait, all right? You wait too long sometimes. Uh, and yet, um, there was this, sometimes there is a delay. In uh, John chapter 14, verse 1, John chapter 14, verse 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes on to the Father except through me. Listen, Jesus has shown us the way to his heavenly home, to the Father's mansions above. Those mansions are the the dwelling places. 
Now, I would just say this. That's what he offers. He gives us the Bible to show us that. He gives us the way of salvation, which is in himself, in the person of Christ. No other. It's not in joining a church. Although, if it's a Bible, uh, Bible church that you know, has the Bible as its authority and they preach the Bible, I would say it's a good church. Uh, in that way, anyways. And there are many other things that mark a healthy church. But I would say this, that that's premier. If it, otherwise, you're just joining a club of like any other club. He's the way. Make a lot about him because he's the only way, all right? And he's the truth. In a world devoid of people, anyways, thinking of, about absolute truth, that whole thing is just, you know, we're living in a world of what people call relativism, right? Truth is relative, all right? In other words... Uh, you, there's no black and white. That's what people say, right? Well, that's not true, <laughs> okay? There are black and white things, right? There are certain laws of nature that you can't defy. You may not believe in the law of gravity, but I guarantee you, you go up onto a high building and jump off, the law of gravity, gravity will teach you. It will school you, especially when you land. Because there are certain laws we cannot, we cannot change, Right? And even if you fly in an airplane or something like that, you're not necessarily defying the laws of gravity. You're overcoming gravity with lift, okay? And the laws of physics are still in play. And the God who orchestrates the entire universe under natural law, and he also has supernatural law. And he tells us how we ought to live. And he reproves us sometimes, and he convicts us of our sin. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7, Look what it says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice. Right? And then verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. And he's referring there specifically to the Hebrew people when they did rebel against God in the wilderness. Even though they heard his voice and they heard God's word through Moses, their servant. Or his servant. Wow. Verse 15 also reiterates that. It says, While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I highlighted the word today. You know why? Because sometimes you don't have 10 days to wait before a decision is made. Sometimes you don't even have the rest of today. And if you hear the voice of God through the word of God as it goes forth, because that's how he speaks to us today, and you harden your heart, you may not have another chance. And there's lots of, lots of illustrations of those kind of people. I think of that many times over. I think of that. Times when I would have witnessed to people and talked to them, and then shortly thereafter, open up the newspaper, and there's their obituary. And I don't know where their eternal state is. That's, I leave that to the judge of all the earth, who does right. And he does, uh, does it perfectly right every time. But if you reject the only lifeline given to you out of this world of sin, and you reject him, the Lord Jesus, there is no other way. There is no other way. Don't harden your heart. Look what he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. 
Think about that. In an acceptable time, I've heard you, and in the day of salvation, I've helped you. Look what he goes on to say. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Tomorrow never gets here. Never gets here. All right? Just so you know that. You can't live in tomorrow. Yet, that's how people go at salvation and uh, about the gospel. Uh, They put it off for another day, another day, a convenient time in my life when that convenient time may never come. I think of Pharaoh in Moses' time. Remember? Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. I mean, Pharaoh had a good deal going. He had these millions of people who were slaves. They were doing his bidding. They were building his kingdom. They were doing all these things. And God heard his people, the Hebrews, and he heard their cry. And he said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh had one problem. He thought he was more powerful than God. And you know how the story goes. Ten plagues come, right? Yeah. And you have these plagues. And in these plagues, you end up having... Um, God demonstrate his power over creation, over the natural things, over the supernatural things, even over Pharaoh. And all through that, it says his, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and hardened. Now, some have argued, did God harden his heart or did Pharaoh harden his heart? And I'll just say it this way. From Pharaoh's perspective, he said no, and he said it one too many times. And as you said, no, and he went, no, 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 his heart got harder, and God said, fine. Just like Romans 1 says, he gave him over to a reprobate mind. You want to harden your heart? There's coming a day you'll never be able to repent. That's a dangerous position, my friends. Not coming to a place where you can repent because your heart is so hard. Repentance. By the way, I think that's one of Satan's greatest tools is delay. Procrastination. I'm not talking about schoolwork or something you were meaning to do on the honeydew list, that kind of procrastination. It's probably good to do those things, but those things happen. But the, to procrastinate and say, when it's convenient, later on, I'll look into these things. I'll tell you, my friends, you'll be in trouble. George Truitt, who is pastor at First Baptist Church in Dallas, said this to his congregation, quote, Satan does not care if men and women come to the house of God and to public services such as these and are attentive and serious and deeply moved if only they will let the religious opportunity pass and be unimproved. Oh, dreadful possibility that religious opportunity may come and pass by and the highest things of the soul be lost and forfeited forever. And what he's referring to there in that religious opportunity is a conversion. If I can put him off for a season, maybe it's because your sin is before you and you really just don't want to deal with your sin. See, you can't come to faith in Christ unless you turn from your sin and repent. Charles Spurgeon, on his comments on this, talks about ten days. And he says, ten days did not seem too long, but they might have been ten days too late. One day does not seem much, but one day more may be one day too late. And one day too late is to be too late forever. Yea, one minute too late is an eternity too late. One minute too late 
is an eternity too late. Rebecca decided that she indeed would be willing and she trusted God's plan for her. By the way, we see in this um, an admonition really of, well, we see what we call theologically divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Those two terms are used, not in Scripture, but that's, it's to explain what we see in how God is involved in salvation and how man also is involved in salvation. I have some verses up here, I think, after this uh, section. Go ahead and advance those. Yeah, okay. Second um, Peter three nine says the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. And then I have in italics there in parenthesis divine sovereignty. What is God's will for man? It says it right there. What is it? That all should be saved, or specifically that they shouldn't perish. You know, God does not delight in people perishing and being apart from Him forever. Not at all. I think people have the wrong concept of who God is, that He's somehow this angry old man in the sky who just is ready to zap sinners into into hell. No, that's not at all. The Scripture shows a God who loves us with an everlasting love, who desires us to be saved. He wants us to be redeemed and brought back to Himself And it's his will that not one should perish. But yet Jesus said, wide is the path to hell, right? The path to destruction. And many there be that are on it. And narrow is the path of righteousness, and few there be that find it. According to Jesus, there are actually more people going to hell than there are going to heaven. Wow. Why? Because man is not willing. Look what he says further. It says, but that all should come to repentance. And I have human responsibility. You see, it's your responsibility and my responsibility when God gives us the message of the gospel to repent from our sin and turn to him in faith. That's your responsibility. And if you are unwilling to do that, you were lost. You are part of the, uh, those on that wide path of destruction. Not because God put you there, but because your sin put you there. And don't ever forget that. I hear people sometimes say, and it's, it's heretical, that God created us, some people, just so they would go to hell. And that's what they say. Vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. The question on that verse, by the way, is who fitted them? Did God fit them or did they fit themselves? If you fail to repent, you are fitted for destruction. Just plain and simple. I'll go back on. Go to the next verse, please. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This is John 6.37. That's divine sovereignty. Do you realize when Jesus says this, that all those who will come to faith in him, they're secure. That's what he's saying. That's God's keeping. His, His sovereignty. His power. But look, and the one who comes to me, that's human responsibility. You have, if you're invited, you have to come. It's that simple. You have to come. If you don't, you're not, the rest of that doesn't work. I will by no means cast out. Next verse, please. 
Here's Jesus speaking in Matthew 23, 37. It's recorded there. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I, I believe Jesus is God the Son. All right? Because he claimed that, and he demonstrated that, and he proves that. Look. God, okay, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And what you see there, and I didn't put the italics there, but you see God's will was that they not perish. In other words, that they would be gathered like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. If you've ever had chickens, you've seen that, right? It's it's almost, it's interesting, it's cute. Uh, I say cute from our perspective. I don't know what a chicken's armpit smells like. But anyways, uh, I say this. You see them, the mother hens run around, all these little chicks, and then something will scare them, and she just, I don't know even what she does, but all of a sudden they're underneath her, just like that. And it's just that instinct that's built into them. Jesus says, I don't like that. You sinners, you Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, they were the people, and by the way, the much, uh, God was so gracious to them. They had this book. They had it studied and memorized and they knew it and they had synagogues and they had a temple they could go to and all the things to know about God and they had His Word and they had prophet after prophet after prophet who came and spoke forth the Word of God and over and over again they rejected it. Jesus says, You were not willing. My friends, when it comes down to this whole perspective of salvation, God's willing you not perish. He wants to save you. He wants to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. I can't think of a safer place for a chick to be than under the the wings of the mother. And yet, people were not willing. Don't be part of the unwilling. Let's go on to another verse here. 2 Peter 1.10, this verse talks about election. That word's used sometimes as there are people who are the elect and people who are not elect, and we don't really know who that is, and therefore um, God elects some to salvation, and he, elects other, he doesn't elect others. And I think that's a misunderstanding of this whole idea of divine sovereignty and human responsibility in this, that we see that God is somehow able to still bring about his purpose and his plan in spite of us not choosing to follow him and do his will, or in spite of doing those things, both. He can do that. But this verse is often used in reference to those that are not believers and saying like to the world, uh, you know, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election or your call and your election sure For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And the idea is there that uh, make sure you're in the elect. Well, this is addressed to believers. It's why he says brethren, okay? And what Peter is saying here is brethren, make sure that you're living out your calling, your election. If you're in Christ, you're elect. Because he's elect. He's God's ordained instrument of salvation. He himself is our Savior. And if you're in him, you're elect. We should not be asking the question whether we are part of the elect or not a part of the elect. But go to the next verse. We really should be asking ourselves whether or not we are saved from our sin. 
In Acts chapter 2, that same Peter the Apostle who wrote later on the second epistle of Peter, he was preaching in Acts chapter 2. That's the record of his sermon. The first day of the church at Pentecost. And the church is started on that day. And you have him preaching and he says, Now when they heard this, this is the testimony, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's a good question, isn't it? A good question. What shall we do? I love it when somebody has that kind of blunt question. They come up and, and, and sometimes they find out I'm a pastor or a chaplain elsewhere or sometimes we're just having this conversation or whatever. I don't usually go to that right away because people have these preconceived notions of what pastors should be like and what they shouldn't be like or whatever. And I, I'm always scared about that. Uh, but I, I say it this way. Sometimes somebody will come up and say, well, how do, how do you get to heaven? And, and they may be cynical, but they may not. They may really be serious about it. I've had those bedside conversations when someone is, is under their, a health need and they're thinking about their own mortality and they're wondering, how should, what should I do? How, how can I get saved? Is what they're asking. They ask it in various ways, but that's really the question. Look at the next verse where he says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the phrase, in, it says, In the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, being baptized for the remission of sins, Peter's not teaching there that being baptized by water removes your sin. What he, the word in the Greek is the Greek word ice, the little conjunction for, preposition for, and it means because of. And in the context, that's what he's referring to. Because elsewhere in Scripture, baptism always followed belief, not baptism and then belief. All right? Do you follow that? But even back up before that, a repentance a repentance. Then Peter said to them, repent. That means stop going the way you think you know is the right way, because it isn't the right way. Turn around. And the Bible says there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. We live in a world where there's all these enlightened people that would like to tell you how to, to get to heaven, but they don't know themselves, and they're on their way to hell. The Bible says repent. That means turn around and go the other way. And the other way is toward God. And that's what he's referring to there. And he says, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's that outward sign that you have already believed. And that's the reference there as well. Now, I will say, baptism literally is an identification with, all right? So there's two kinds of baptism in Scripture. There's more than that, but there's just really two dealing with the believer. There's being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that happens when you finally repent and turn to Christ. You receive the Holy Spirit and you identify with God. He becomes, you become sealed by Him. And you can be filled with the Holy Spirit at that point. You can be yielded to the Holy Spirit. All those things are given. But then there's also believer's baptism. And that's, that's water baptism. The picture in Scripture is by immersion. And it is a, a picture of really uh, outwardly of what has already gone in, on in, in the life of the believer. You're turning away from your old way. 
You're dying to self. That's what the water represents there really is a place of death. Nobody can stay underwater without any air supply very long, right? But really it's a picture of going down into the waters, a sinner identified with Christ, being raised up new, and walking in newness. And it's really a picture of salvation, the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And baptism pictures is an outward expression of that. And it's a, it's a step of obedience, by the way. By the way, we're in the summertime, and, and it's easier to be baptized in the summertime around here than in the wintertime. Um, so if, if there's anybody that hasn't been baptized and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're walking with him, and you would like to do that, come see me. We'll, we'll set something up. I think it would be an, a, a great opportunity this summer, or even sooner, right? Um, off on a different subject. But let's continue on. I've got to wrap this up anyways. And he brought them out to Zach 16.30. Oh, the account here is the Philippian jailer. Remember? Paul and Silas are in jail. They've been thrown there because they caused a stir. And uh, Acts 16 is, is an interesting thing. And they end up in the chief jail, or in the, in the, in the, really the worst prison in that province. And the jailer who was in charge of them. And in the middle of the night, there's an earthquake, a divine earthquake. And the doors are opened, and the jailer comes running back, and he thinks he's a dead man. He wants to die. He's going to kill himself because he feels, fears all the prisoners are gone, and that was his responsibility. Anyways, the prisoners are all still in jail, even though the doors are open. And Paul calms him down, and the man says this. He brought them out, Paul and Silas, and he said Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a question. Now that was not a question just springing out of the darkness. It was something he had watched these two believers persecuted. He had heard of their message. He had listened to them singing in the night. I bet they were singing gospel songs. might not sound like your gospel songs we sing today, but it was probably songs that had the message in it. And God worked in this man's heart. And he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Look at the next verse. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And that, that last part is just an extra blessing. When that man got right, his, his people in his household got right too. Oh, how important for men to get right. And women as well, and little boys and girls. But, but when a man gets right, he often brings with it a leadership quality in his own home that is, is just, it, God uses that. And I've seen that over and over again over the years. Wow. Let's go to the next verse, if you would. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Look what it says in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And I, I want to have this. I love that verse. First of all, it's in the Old Testament. And if you don't think God was calling people to salvation and faith in him in the Old Testament, then you haven't read your Bible. I think we were talking yesterday, Chris, uh, with Brad or, or whatever. Brad's been in the Old Testament in his teaching. And I was all excited about that. I'm like, great, because 
listen, that's foundational, and it teaches us the, the nature of who God is, and the New Testament makes sense when you come to it. So keep teaching in the Old Testament. You know, don't only stay in the Old Testament, but I say this, that's, that's not bad. Because the Bible declares from cover to cover, ever since sin came into the world and, and through man's sin entered into all of us, listen, he calls us to repent, to turn away from our unrighteous deeds and to follow him, come to him in mercy, and he will abundantly pardon. I love that. You know, we have uh, similar laws in a sense that we can have, a, our governor can pardon people under a special proclamation, and also our president can do that. Uh, if you go to a picture of a printer, do I have that in there? Uh, you guys remember the old dot matrix printers? They're still out there somewhere. Most of them are in a landfill somewhere. But anyways, you remember those, and when you went to print something, and I remember this, uh, my, well, I think it was when I was at MBBI, and I was up later than I was supposed to be in the curfew hour, and I was finishing a term paper, and I forgot and I printed that, and the dot matrix printer went off in the middle of the night, you know, I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to get demerits for this. Uh, but you remember how loud those things were, right? Well, a few years after that, I was working at a sheriff's department in, uh, in central Maine here as a dispatcher, and I was working at a night shift. And at night shift, we would do background checks and things like that for people getting firearms or, or, or concealed carry permits, those kind of things. And so we'd run names and then put that in their file for the deputy to review, the sheriff to review, whoever reviewed those things. And I had a list of names that night, and I remember we were typing those names in. And most of the time, you would just get the, and everything was printed out. So we'd run a check real quick against the, the National Crime Computer and the State Bureau of Investigations Computer and about 11 other things that it checks on your, your names. And you'd run the name and date of birth of somebody. And then it would usually just spit out a little phrase that said, no information found or no record found. And that would be it. And it was just, bzz, that was it. And then you'd tear that off, stick it in their file. Well, one night I, I printed off a name or I typed in a name. And when you hit the, the enter key there, the return key, all of a sudden the printer started going nuts. Bzz, 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 bzz. And it kept on doing that for like 20 minutes. And I thought, wow, and this is just page after page after page of criminal activity. And I'm thinking, yeah, this guy wants to get a gun in Maine. No, he's not going to, it's not going to get a gun. And I remember looking at this, you know, going through, uh, and it printed out the f last page, and I was folding that stuff up because we'd tear it off and stick it in the file. It was a great big stack of papers. And I read the very last line, and it said, unconditional pardon by the President of the United States of America. And I thought, wow. What that meant is all that criminal history was no longer something that could be held against that person because they were pardoned. But it sort of fell short of what a real pardon that we need is because the guy's criminal history was still on file. I mean, he was still a bad guy, all right? I mean, or at least it showed that. But somehow he had convinced a president somehow to, to clear all that. And that's part of our laws. But you know what? God is so good. God pardons us, and he doesn't even remember the sin anymore. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, look what it says there in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. And, it, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out on our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. I'm going to stop right there on that verse. The word justified is a biblical word, and it means to be declared righteous. It's different than the pardon a president can give in that you may be able to legally, you know, not have any consequences of your sin, uh, but your sin is still there on record, just in case you wondered. And yet with God, when we come to him for pardon, and he abundantly pardons, he removes it. And he justifies us. And the word justified, as I said, it means to be declared righteous. That means if there isn't a dot matrix printer in heaven, I'm glad, but, you know, if there was... And God wanted to print all my activity of my sin in my life, and it would just go on and on and on and on and on. I know. Some of you are wondering, like, it could be really long. We'd run out of paper. But it's not like that. There's no record. Because Jesus Christ has justified us. His blood is the only sacrifice. It has removed our sin, covered our sin, and, and it's adjudicated everything. It's taken it away. Never to be remembered no, anymore. And I'm thankful for that. In the eternal state, there is no more sin. Do you know Christ? Have you repented and turned to him? Today is the day you can do that. If you haven't done it, don't wait till tomorrow because it never gets here. Lord, again, we're thankful for your word. And Lord, I'm thankful that so many years ago, a young bride named Rebecca was willing to go and to start a family. And all the nations of the earth are blessed because of that family. Because out of that same family, oh God, would be one who would come, who would be Savior of the world. We praise you for that. And we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.